I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Will Chamberlain. And I'm Rachel Bovard. And this is NatCon Squad, where common sense and common good meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we have a very well-rounded show as ever, perhaps even more so today. So we're going to start off on the proxy fight for the soul of the Republican Party, always kind of a juicy kind of way to start things off. And we're going to likewise shift over to Rachel, who will talk about senators who didn't show up to a vaccine mandate vote. Then we're going to kind of shift over to all things European related. Will's going to talk about the latest on Ukraine, Russia, and U.S. leadership. And I will close this out uh, on a similar note on that part of the world, talking about my recent trip to Hungary and what I saw there. But for now, let's start things off with Emily and the proxy fight for the future of the GOP. Sure. Well, my colleagues at The Federalist reported exclusively last week that Kevin McCarthy had endorsed uh, Liz Cheney's top primary challenger out in Wyoming. And this kicked off or actually continued a sort of proxy war that had once again bubbled to the surface of the the sort of Republican conversation um, a week earlier with the legitimate discourse uh, controversy over the RNC, which did not say that a riot, uh, especially right at the Capitol was legitimate discourse, but was taken that way by a lot of people on the center and in the media and the left. Um, and you had, you know, sort of the Liz Cheney wing of the party denouncing the RNC and saying January 6 was not legitimate discourse, et cetera, et cetera, when of course they were talking about all of the peacefully assembled people that had nothing to do with the Capitol riot. And so now you have Kevin McCarthy jumping in uh, late last week to actually uh, endorse a primary challenger to Liz Cheney. It's, it's very interesting. I saw a piece uh, written last week in, gosh, I forget which publication it was, maybe The Bulwark, talking about how Liz Cheney is more conservative based on her voting record than Elise Stefanik, uh, which is a really funny and interesting point to make uh, because Elise Stefanik is somebody who does have a less conservative voting record but has a more conservative, I would say, temperament. Um, and it gets into this question of, and Liz Cheney, by the way, was happy to support sort of the Trump agenda um, until she, you know, it, it may have kind of blown up her spot on the Georgetown cocktail party circuit even more than it, it already had, I suppose. Um, and so this is a, a great question because it gets to what's happening on the right in that you, if you're looking at people's votes as a uh, litmus test um, and, and ignoring their temperament. Um, you're ignoring something that is increasingly incredibly important. Um, Liz Cheney's conduct on the January 6th committee is policy. It is substance. It is not uh, somehow undone by the fact that she voted with Trump more than Elise Stefanik. If you are against the January 6th committee, you are in a substantially, substantially more conservative place than Liz Cheney. And so I think that's why Kevin McCarthy, who, by the way, is hardly like a Tea Party uh, Freedom Caucus Republican wading into this war over Liz Cheney's seat in Wyoming is a hugely interesting development. It's not unexpected. It's not unsurprising. But Liz Cheney has become a big uh, it's, it's really become a proxy war. And it's interesting because it's between sort of two moderates, if you're looking at Kevin McCarthy and Liz Cheney, one of whom is more like in, in terms of their temperament, um, which is substance uh, conservative, and the other in terms of their temperament, which is 
what do we even call it at this point, like openly liberal um, when you're weaponizing the January 6th committee um, in the ways that Liz Cheney has. So basically, I think it gets to this divide over um, whether conservatives, uh, how the sort of intelligent state and and the, the I don't know, the deep state um, is really the, the real litmus test um, and, and sort of the political establishment, your approach to the political establishment is the real litmus test for conservatism. And with that, I'll, I'll kick it open to the group. So I think in many ways, this is also a proxy for Kevin McCarthy's potential speakership. <laughs> and I think many Republicans are treating it that way, because as you rightly point out, you know, there's been this attempt among sort of established some sort of establishment never Trump types to paint the um, acrimony toward Cheney and Kinzinger as just the Republican Party, you know, going after people who dissent or who think differently, when in reality, it's not. It's it's about the fact that Cheney and Kinzinger, and Cheney in particular, are actively helping Democrats. They are actively siding with the opposition. And when you are in that position in your own party, you know, when you are trying to <laughs> subpoena your own colleagues with the intent of potentially putting them in jail if they don't comply, the best thing to do is to become a Democrat. It's not to continue to seek shelter and protection under the, the umbrella of the Republican Party. And so I have said in many public forums, I think even on this podcast, that I think you know the, the censure by the RNC is absolutely appropriate here. Um, but I think many people are watching McCarthy to see how he handles this. Because again, like taking out the fact that this is a rational political response to people who are trying to hurt you within your own party, I think it also is, yeah, like, are you going to, you know, stand up for the majority of your conference versus the fringe of your conference? And the fringe at this point is Liz Cheney. So I think he's that that dynamic is 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 very out in the open right now. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think Liz Cheney has any room to complain. You know, Liz Cheney decided when she was in leadership to oppose Thomas Massey's just uh, to, to endorse Thomas Massey's primary opponent. Now, I mean, the, the tables have turned and suddenly everybody's endorsing it against her. And, you know, Thomas Massey just disagreed on policy. Liz Cheney is straight up, as Rachel points out, using the January 6th committee to subpoena her colleagues. And I think there was some reporting done that suggested that Liz Cheney was one of the primary drivers of how aggressive the January 6th committee was been saying things like, well, they'll give us hell anyway, so we should just go all the way and be super aggressive and use our investigatory powers ruthlessly. Um, you know, and so in, in a sense, it's like, you know, maybe it is a proxy fight for the soul of GOP, but if it is, it's it's one. I mean, the Liz Cheney and Adam Kings are on the wrong side. They're both going to be out of office um, in November. Uh, and, you know, along with like a slew of all the, you know, there might be one remaining Republican who voted for impeachment. Maybe, you know, I think Peter Meyer might be the only guy with a real shot of keeping the seat. Everybody else is either retired or is facing massively the uphill odds. So, um, you know, in a sense, like we've won, there's a reason Bill Crystal is uh, speaking, you know, <laughs> Bill Crystal, you know, we got Tulsi Gabbard speaking at, at CPAC, but uh, Bill Crystal actually would <laughs> a hardline Democrat. Things have changed. And from my perspective, things have changed substantially for the better. So I have a very simple point to make on Liz Cheney, which is a friendly reminder that Liz Cheney represents the state of Wyoming, which if you look in the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections, if I'm not mistaken, Wyoming, I think both times was the state with the single largest margin of victory for President Trump. It was over it was over 40% both times. I think West Virginia was second, like Oklahoma might have been third. But Wyoming, if I if I recall correctly, um, you know, made the fact checkers and the podcast comments will call me out for it. But if I recall correctly, it was literally the largest statewide margin of victory here. And you know, I remember 
because I, I spent a year living in, in Denver, Colorado, between my Texas stint and my current Florida stint. And I remember last May doing like a, little, a little weekend trip from Denver up to Cheyenne, Wyoming, which for those of you who, who have not been, is basically right over the uh, Colorado-Wyoming border. It's literally like 10 miles into the state of Wyoming. But you, this was last May, so it was just after kind of the vaxes were rolled out, the mass mandates were still enforced there. And it's just like, a, it was a totally different world at the time. Like Colorado, you know, blue state governance, like very masked up. And I go, I literally drive an hour, 40 minutes, very close. And I, I get into Wyoming, no mass anywhere, just a totally, totally different place. And when, I remember seeing a big billboard there um, saying like Liz Cheney retire. So I, I, Wyoming's like real America, okay? <laughs> just to kind of underscore the point, like put an emphasis on this. So we can do a heck of a lot better um, from Wyoming than Liz Cheney. It reminds me a little bit of kind of the 2014 GOP Senate primary back in Mississippi between Thad Cochran and Chris McDaniel. And I remember Chris McDaniel running all sorts of kind of primary ads, basically saying like, this is Mississippi, okay? Um, like we don't have to settle for second best here. So um, that's, that's, I basically agree with everything that everyone has said here. I agree with Rachel to an extent, this is just a proxy for Kevin McCarthy's future speech. Speakership. Um, but I just I, I really just want to emphasize the point here that this is the state of Wyoming. Okay. This is not like a a, a milk toast kind of swing state. This is as bright, bright red as it gets. And we should not have to settle for anything less than fully, fully solid. And the final point I'll make on this is just to reiterate what Will and Josh said, which is if this is a proxy battle, which I think it is, it is one. Um, and that's what I meant by pointing out that Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy is weighing in here. Um, that means the the sort of power um, has shifted to fortunately the right side of of this proxy war. So with that, I'll, I'll toss to Josh. Uh, and toss I am back going, to Josh. <laughs> and, I, and, and I am going to in turn toss it over to Rachel actually. So we're gonna do a little baton tossing exercise here. <laughs> so we're staying with the theme of, of Congress here. Um, as people may have seen last week, uh, there was an actual another vote, uh, the second, I believe, the Senate has taken in an effort to defund Biden's vaccine mandates. And so specifically because the Supreme Court has overturned the broader mandate, but left in place the mandate for federal workers and healthcare workers, Senator Mike Lee offered an amendment to defund that remaining part of the vaccine of, of Biden's vaccine mandate. Now, this is significant because this wasn't just an amendment on any bill. This is an amendment to the CR, the continuing resolution, which funds the government you know, for a specific period of time. Uh, so this was a must-pass bill. This was about government funding. And as anyone who's watched Congress for any length of time knows, these this is where members get the highest points of leverage, right? These bills have to pass where the government shuts down. And that government shutdown is, is always useful for people who are demanding votes on things. So you had a vote, you had a couple of, of votes actually on the vaccine issue, but I wanna focus on the Lee Amendment in particular because um, a couple of things happened here. So this amendment was germane. And, this, and what that means is it was relevant to the substance of the bill. And because of that, there's an argument to be made that it should have been considered at a 51 vote majority threshold difference from a, the way a lot of the Senate handles things, which is at 60 votes, um, that it was considered at 51. Me, and because of several Democratic absences, so you had several Democratic senators absent. You, I'm thinking of Senator Lujan in particular, who just unfortunately suffered a stroke out of New Mexico. He was still in the hospital. You had a couple other Democrats missing. You had a situation in which the Republicans, by simply the virtue of being there, had a majority, had the ability to actually outflank Democrats on this issue in a tied Senate. Now, normally when you have a tie vote in the Senate, the vice president comes and breaks that tie, Republican, you know, the minority would lose in that situation. Republicans had an opportunity to pass this amendment. 
Of course, we can't ever get to talk about Republicans in the Senate without talking about looking a gift horse straight in the mouth because that is exactly what they did. In addition to being able to pass this amendment, why would they actually want to do that? You, act, it, you had four Republicans who failed to show up for this vote, thus ensuring it failed. It failed by a party, a party line vote of 47 to 46. The missing Republicans were Lindsey Graham, Mitt Romney, Richard Burr, and Jim Inhofe. Now, Richard Burr's retiring. I don't know what his excuse was. Lindsey Graham was overseas. Uh, I heard he was in Israel, and then potentially he was at the defense summit in Munich. Um, again, not, not particularly uh, things he was elected to do, right? You when you're elected, you have one job, and it's to show up and vote, uh, not go to defense junkets. I don't know where uh, Romney and Inhofe were. I'm sure there's been some reporting on where they were. But where they were is almost not important to me, because again, when you are elected, you have one job and is to show up. And Republicans, again, I cannot emphasize this enough, had an opportunity to win this vote. They had an opportunity to actually defund this part of Biden's mandate, and they didn't do it. Now, I have it on good authority from a couple of, of staff in the Senate, and I don't believe this has been reported, but so I guess breaking news on that front, but um, John Thune, who is the majority or the whip, uh, whip of the Republican Party, so the person in charge of counting votes, was standing in the cloakroom for several hours. And the cloakroom um, in either party is responsible for knowing where the senators are, waited till enough Republicans had left to tell the Democrats, OK, it's OK, you can you can have scheduled the vote now. You'll win and we'll lose. And this happens on a regular basis um, in the Senate. You know, I call them head pats. Um, their votes designed to basically make it look like something is happening to satisfy a constituency without having the burden of actually making law. And it is just unconscionable to me that the Senate Republicans engaged in that tactic with this vaccine mandate. This is roiling the country. This is something that, you know, is violating the sort of bodily integrity of, you know, millions of Americans, not to mention the thousands of Americans that have been fired from their jobs for refusing a vaccine for available for less than a year. And this is how Senate Republicans treat it with this kind of flippancy. So I think talking about this is really important. But I'm, my, I guess my broader question is, what does this tell you about the state of the Senate Republicans? We've talked a lot about House Republicans on this show, but the Senate Republicans often get a pass. And I think then I don't think that they should. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine that this wasn't planned in advance, right, either by some sort of vote canceling mechanism, you know, maybe Jim Inhofe wanted to vote one way and Lindsay wanted to vote the other. And so they both agreed not to show up or then some other agreement between Thune and the Democrats where, you know, they basically, you know, McConnell and Thune didn't want to get rid of vaccine mandates, but wanted to vote against it. So they, they arranged it so that they could have both have their cake and eat it too. They could vote against it, but ensure that the mandates are made in place. Um, it's a sham. I'm not sure what we do about it other than, I mean, the, the problem is it takes so long to replace senators. Uh, they get six year terms. I mean, we've there's a bunch of clowns. I mean, seriously, Richard Burr has been an absolute clown uh, for the America for America First movement since Trump was elected. It's been it's been a nightmare. I mean, I just remember him, you know, subpoenaing Donald Trump Jr. and being really hardcore about that subpoena, you know, the president's son. And he's just you know going after him of his own party. Uh, and Burr, you know, then also the the insider trading stuff with Burr seemed he seemed particularly uh, aggressive about that. And yet, for some reason, he didn't lose his committee assignments. Strange. Um, yeah, a Senate Republican. There's Mitch McConnell is very talented and and very good at certain things like getting judges judges confirmed. But it's very clear he's not very much on the national conservative side, like and and also not with the base. And and it and it sucks. And we need to figure out a way to like hold the hold senators feet to the fire a little better and i'm not actually sure what that is yeah i feel like this has just been like the you know like the never dying recurring 
conversation that we've had ever since I started to get like more involved in campaigns and politics and all that stuff, maybe during like the Tea Party era, like 10, 12 years ago or so. And, you know, I mean, Rachel's obviously been at the forefront of this movement, right? Trying to recruit better candidates and do primary challenges. And we, you know, we back when, uh, when Jim Dimink was running Senate Conservatives Fund, obviously we'd had a lot of those primary challenges. And we still obviously are trying to do that through other mechanisms as well here. But it's a problem that for, I think for institutional reasons will probably never truly go away, obviously. I mean, the best that we can possibly do is try to mitigate it and just try to fight kind of ad hoc one-off battles and try to win where we possibly can and get more kind of NACON, America first, pro-America whatever words you want to use kind of candidates across the spectrum there. One thing that I kind of want to add, so around the same time that this was happening, um, there was a very interesting opinion out of the court that I clerked on, the Fifth Circuit. Um, it, it, it was three Republican nominees. It was Jennifer Elrod, who is a uh, George W. Bush nominee. It was Andy Oldham, a Trump nominee, and Jerry Smith, um, who, uh, along with Edith Jones, is kind of like the two kind of Reagan lions of, of, of the court. And the case um, was a United Airlines vax mandate case. Long story short, I'll cut to the chase here. Um, the court sides two to one um, in, in, on the good side, basically staying the vax mandates um, with uh, Elrod and Oldham in the majority. Judge Smith, um, who I, I personally know Judge Smith, um, you know, he used to listen to Rush Limbaugh in his chambers every single day when Rush was alive. So he definitely is a, you know, movement conservative for the past half century, wrote a blistering dissent, a, a, an unusually personal dissent, actually, on kind of the opposite side of this issue here. I, I kind of have to wonder whether there's just like a generational gap, honestly, um, that's kind of where I'm getting here. Um, we're looking at like Inhofe's and one of these kind of older Republicans kind of look side by side around the same time that Jerry Smith was writing this dissent. It just seems to be kind of a generational disconnect on this issue. And I, th I think the boomer cons really just fundamentally don't realize the way that the vaccine mandates are being used to subjugate young deplorables, young America first people. I think I think there's just a genuine failure to understand that. And also, I think I think a greater concern. I think I've, I've noticed that generally that like older Republicans, you know, I've talked to my parents about it and or just generally people who are over 70. Um, they are a lot more scared of COVID and, and they have a reason to like, I think, I think less so now, but you get this, they were, they were much more serious about it. And I mean, I even know a long-term thesis that, that, you know, Trump's lack of seriousness with regard to COVID actually cost him, um, cost him the election in 2020, because he, if you look at the numbers, he just lost old white people, like, which is a voting block he should never lose, right. As a Republican, but he lost a bunch of them. Um, so, you know, I guess that's, that's, that's sort of on this issue that I wouldn't be surprised if that's exactly what we're dealing with in the Senate. A lot of I don't old white men. Yeah, I don't think that's a bad theory at all. Um, and we could relitigate 2020, but I actually agree with Will that that was a huge part of it. Um, and I, basically, whatever Rachel says, I just assume is true because I lack the extreme evergreen sentiment, by the way. Right. Well, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes. Um, but when, uh, you know, you get her talking about uh, certain things and I'm like, Rachel, please. This is this is America, not uh, so the Soviet Union. Um, especially. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but in this case, uh, you know, the, the procedural stuff is often exploited by members and their staff to shield them. Um, and I, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if that was part of this, if age was part of this, but it does speak to, uh, 
an interesting failure on the part of the Republican Party to coalesce um, in a, around something that is just so plainly obvious. Uh, I think that's always been a problem with COVID. Um, you know, even going back, like South South Dakota Republicans will tell you that they actually stopped Christy Nome from shutting things down early. Um, in it's not as though any of this has been easy, but we're two years into it. We should, uh, you know, like people who are thinking clearly on this should have a more unified front um so on that by this point so on that we can transition to the next segment <laughs> sure uh so i wanted to talk about ukraine and russia and i guess i wanted to make a couple points that i haven't seen like out there a lot um the first is we have this sort of bizarre insistence that war with with ukraine or russia putin has made a decision to invade and he's going to do it tomorrow and that's like are breathlessly repeated by both like mainstream news outlets and even by like government officials and it just strikes me that 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 obvious that's very strange to also be saying that while also claiming that Putin is a master of deception and misinformation, right? Like, you, why do we assume we know Putin's mind? You guys are sure he's going to invade tomorrow? Really? Do we know that? It seems like he hasn't yet. Um, I have a basic thesis that uh, somebody made the point that what what Putin's able to do by putting you know, 150,000 troops on the border is essentially makes Ukraine's situation just totally untenable, and so extract concessions because. You can't have a functioning economy in a world where like people are threatening to invade you. They're not. They're not going to invest. Um, so instead, we've just kind of got we've got like very very serious bullying. But like the threat of invasion seems low. And so you know the fact that I had we had you know I think maybe a week ago or so you had the Ukrainian president being like stop claiming that war isn't coming immediately. Um, whereas you know we still had Biden and Russia and the Americans be like no you're going to get invaded tomorrow. Um, so I think I think that's strange. And I think that the second thing that really is is strange to me is we have this bizarre situation where because we had actual leverage over Putin with the, the Nord Stream pipeline um, that Trump had sanctioned and that somebody made a very interesting point. It's not just that the, the Nord Stream pipeline prevented Russia from you know making money off of natural gas. It meant that it relied on the pipelines through Ukraine, so it couldn't turn Ukraine into a battleground. Because um, it's not, you know, it's not safe to do that. You'd be jeopardizing all your your energy sales. But we let this pipeline go through um, at the behest of Germany, and now basically one Germany's in in Putin's pocket because they're they're not going to oppose it. Two, we they, there's nothing stopping him from invading Ukraine, and all of a sudden everybody's getting like now we're trying to like get in the way and stop any further incursion into Ukraine. Like not, our American policy on this just doesn't make much sense. Um, and then finally, this sort of like you know. I would like American policy on Ukraine to make sense, but I also am not a, in the position where I think we have any business intervening in Ukraine. We, it's just way wildly outside of our sphere of influence. And I saw people like David French being like, you're crazy if you think Canada is more important than Ukraine or what's going on in Canada is more important than Ukraine. I'm like, really? We share a 3,000 mile long border with Canada. They're, they're, they're our Northern neighbor and what's being done by Trudeau, like Trudeau and Biden have affinity. And, and so what's being done to you know, conservatives in Canada is very much of concern to conservatives in the United States. So the fact that David French is like completely alienated from those basic concerns, uh, you know, that American American conservatives have, and is still like obsessed with, you know, a, a border dispute five thousand miles away is just kind of shocking to me. And so, you know, I realize that like national conservatives and sort of a you know broader movement with like a bunch of European constituents, and that Ukraine has certainly much more direct influence, you know, relevance to their interests. But in terms of the United States interests, I actually don't see a substantial, um, you know, other than trying, you know, we'd like to deter it. We want to maintain an order of sovereign states. We should go back to sanctioning the Nord Stream pipeline and try and deter it with that sort of means. But I, I don't, I don't get the sort of, you know, 
this this idea that Biden should like go aggressively confront Putin and, and that we might actually have you know a military confrontation it sounds like a terrible idea. Anyway, I'll, I'll, that's what I wanted to talk about there. All right, so a few quick points. I I, I definitely like agree with Will's take basically, but just a few things to kind of emphasize or uh, also to add to the conversation here. So, just want to emphasize the Nord Stream two point here. Um, it, it is ludicrous. It is absolutely ludicrous that senile Joe Biden is now beating the war drums on Vladimir Putin basically a half year after he just completely caved on Nord Stream 2 to Putin. I mean, I wrote that column at the time. Um, you know, he was uh, talking with Germany. They kind of at the very at the very last minute, the Biden State Department kind of just immediately kind of caved in there. They gave Vladimir Putin exactly what he wanted on Nord Stream 2. The way to fight back against Putin is not necessarily by sending troops there. It is by uh, lots of kind of softer measures. Okay, the Trump administration put back missile defense, you know, in Poland and Czech Republic and our allies in Central and Eastern Europe, which the Biden, which the, excuse me, the Obama administration had taken out. The way to kind of push back was through kind of petroleum. Was that, that's kind of obviously the mother's milk of the current Russian Federation, and Nord Stream Two was the exact vehicle to do that. So it's just nuts, frankly. And I, 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 I'm cynical enough, where I basically think this entire thing is effectively a way for Biden to try to just distract from obviously all of his kind of sundry domestic woes, obviously with inflation reaching kind of 40 year highs, um, everything else going on, Afghanistan, obviously. So that's really what I think is ultimately going on here. Just a couple of other things to note. Um, Germany, because of Nord Stream 2 and for other kind of historical reasons, which are probably a little murkier, um, Germany is effectively ambivalent, the best that I can tell, um, I, on what happens between Russia and Ukraine. They genuinely do not seem to care at best, um, I, at quote unquote worst. They probably are rooting for Putin to just do whatever he wants because they are that reliant on Russia. Um, if Germany, which is by far the most economically important country in the European Union, is ambivalent and does not care, I, I fail to see any reason whatsoever why I should give a you-know-what about what Vladimir Putin does in the Donbass region of Ukraine. Um, and just a couple other quick things to note here. Um, this narrative that liberal democracy is on the line between big thuggish authoritarian Putin, who obviously is a thug, okay, he's ex-KGB, he definitely, you know, he murders political opponents, this is not a good man, okay, like, I'm not trying to downplay that. But the notion that, like, Ukraine can be juxtaposed as some bastion of liberal democracy is completely farcical. Ukraine is just as, if not more corrupt and oligarchic a country as Russia is. Uh, President Zelensky there, I genuinely think, based on what I've read and what I've heard, probably fears for his life on most days, because the oligarchs there actually have that much power if he missteps. This is not a friendly place. Um, it is not kind of a bastion of liberal democracy, obviously. And just like a final note, and we'll get to this in, in the next segment, even some people on the ground there in the region are not necessarily involved. I mean, Hungary, which shares a border with Ukraine, Hungary and Ukraine have deeply frosty relations right now because of the way Ukraine, Ukraine treats the ethnic Hungarian minority in Western Ukraine. So this narrative of, of the David French kind of good versus evil binary is just totally false. It's, 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 it's grotesque misinformation, honestly. Yeah, I don't have a ton more to add. I do think that Josh's point about, and Will's point, obviously, about Nord Stream is, is critical here. And it's like grossly and criminally underreported in all of this, right? Like the fact that we spent four years saying Trump was a Russian asset when he, and, and he was effectively more aggressive on this point against Russia than Joe Biden is here. And we aren't even talking about that fact. We aren't even talking about the fact that our critical deterrence measure was taken off the table. Um, but, you know, I've sort of stayed a little bit out of these arguments because I don't feel like I have 
a, a, a the best grasp of you know all the competing sort of narratives going on here. But I'm also wondering if that's kind of the point. I think there's a tremendous amount of gaslighting going on right now from the media, from Joe Biden, from sort of people. And this is always how wars begin, right? Is is that they tell you your hair must be on fire. They tell you that everything's at stake. That like it is vital. You aren't patriotic if you don't care about this border that is you know thousands of miles away from you. And I just I just I, like I, it's it's very difficult for me to get worked up about Russia, a dying petrostate, when China exists, and that's basically kind of my not informed take on this whole thing. <laughs> Russia is Saudi Arabia with caviar. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's it's not except no, less relevant. <laughs> and vodka, like what other than caviar and vodka, what do you buy that's made in Russia? Like well, nothing. Uh, my colleague, John Daniel Davidson, um, sent a screenshot of the New York Times homepage around this morning, and it was just plastered with a million different angles about why Ukraine is the biggest news in the world right now. And this is it is very interesting because it's basically projecting exactly the concerns um, of our military and of our Department of Defense, um, which again, like you're the New York Times, like, do you not have better judgment um, than saying that all the news that's fit to print on your front page is just like basically just every single different um, angle on the Ukraine issue. And I think there's something between uh, there's there's something very much between we are all Ukraine, which was just a disgustingly sanctimonious and wrong sentiment, and nobody cares uh, because there are you know people have legitimate reasons to want the United States to be a leader. I, the more that I think about it, the more you know I realize it's it is technologically impossible to sort of disentangle ourselves and remain a safe country and and protect our borders um, and protect our people. It's sort of impossible just to do that in a a nuclear world um, in, in a way that it might feel um, sort of like we counter we, we could counterbalance all of our silly binary uh, behavior over the the course of the last you know 50 or so years um, but I, I think it's important for you know in the sort of conservatives finding the position between um, maybe Sorab and um, Lindsey Graham to you know maybe realign our our I guess our philosophy our basic philosophy on on who the foreign policy serves and this is a great test Taiwan is a great test um, of that question um, and I hope that we're arriving at a better solution um, but I, I'm not sure that what we've arrived at yet is exactly it um, and I'll just close by saying I think what everybody said in this segment is absolutely true that the the sort of binary being depicted by the media does no service to the american people it is misinformation and it's uh, not helping anything okay so let's um stay in that general region um central and eastern europe i guess and i just want to close out by doing um what, what, what i guess might be a somewhat self-aggrandizing segment but I, but it is about a topic that has come up a few times on this podcast and is kind of getting in, in uh, outsized attention if you will on, on the current american right american conservative discourses and that's um the nation state of hungary which is a relatively small state um about 10 million people live there um, you know, formerly used to, be, used to be a lot bigger, obviously, kind of at the height of the Austro-Hungarian Empire back when Vienna and Budapest, I think, had kind of outsized power in the world. But anyway, so I, I was just there, okay, if it is where this is going. I was just there. I spent um, four or five days there last week. I flew over for um, a conference um, that uh, MCC, which is kind of a university there in Budapest, put on. There were a lot of Americans over there. Um, Heather McDonald from Manhattan Institute was there. 
Um, you know, Rod Dreher, who's kind of uh, on and off there for the past year or so. Uh, our friend Gladden Pappin was there from American Affairs. Um, Jeremy Carl, Claire Munster. So a lot of Americans flew in for this. So as I'm sure we've talked in this podcast numerous times, and as the No Debt Astute listeners of this podcast are also aware, Hungary's kind of gotten some like outsized attention in American conservative circles, right? The New York Times, they did this long piece back in October about the um, the new right. It was disproportionately focused on, on Hungary. I think Rod Dreher himself had like uh, his, you know, his name was cited like 30 times in that article or something like that. Um, but this is my first time over there. I'd never been to the country, and I got really, really, really lucky. Um, literally, on my layover in Munich, Germany, on the way over there, I got a very last-minute email saying, um, you know, you're in a small group, me and the prime minister, in two hours. So I had to, like, frantically go to the airport in Budapest, change out of my sweatpants and hoodie into, like, something moderately respectable. And and I got to meet uh, Prime Minister Orban, who's gotten in, you know, he, he he gets all sorts of flack. People in the Western media, the New York Times, Washington Post, they call him a thuggish dictator, authoritarian, fascist, you know, all the all the normal terms there. And it's because he's been in power now for um, about 10 to 12 years. I think he, he he got back to power in 2010. And his party, Fidesz, is is an undoubtedly conservative party, um, along with uh, Law and Justice, which is Prime Minister Morawiecki's party in Poland, is really kind of one of the two truly kind of NatCon national conservative parties currently in power in Europe. There are all sorts of other kind of natcon parties in Europe. There's, um, you know, there's Vox in Spain, there's La Liga in, in Italy, and lots of kind of other smaller parties, certainly in the UK as well, of course. But um, I, I kind of saw this for myself. And when I got there, we, you know, we stood around, we, we literally were standing for like two hours. Um, there were like 20 of us with uh, Prime Minister Orban and his kind of political uh, director, Balaj Orban, they're not related. And I, I got to hear this man talk. And first of all, he's like laugh out loud funny. Like literally, I was like laughing. He has a real sense of humor, very outgoing, very casual. He was wearing like dad jeans kind of uh, and like took our questions, handled them quite well. And the country is nothing like what the media depicts it as, um, based on everything that I saw there. Um, you kind of hear that, this, that, that he's anti-Semitic because he talks a lot about kind of Hungary's Christian heritage and kind of Christianity infuses kind of uh, the polity. Um, you know, marriage is, is robustly publicly defended. There is union of one man and, and one, one woman. Religious schools get all sorts of kind of preference in the education. But the notion that this country is anti-Semitic, I personally saw is utterly insane. Um, like uh, the Jewish community there is actually quite thriving. I personally visited numerous synagogues. I ate in a kosher restaurant. Um, it, the government is, is, if anything, deeply philo-Semitic. Um, you know, it, it is public that um, our Remenberg Foundation colleague, Yoram Hazoni, is, is, is quite friendly with Prime Minister Orban. Uh, former Prime Minister Netanyahu said that Orban was his greatest ally at the United Nations. So uh, this narrative is just totally, it's just totally nonsense there. And more generally speaking, but I was really kind of taken aback because this is NatCon squad. This is the home for national conservatism. Balaj Orban, Prime Minister Orban's, uh, again, his political director, literally said, and I, I, this is basically verbatim in this meeting uh, in Carmelita, the prime minister's residence um, in Budapest, he basically said verbatim, this is a national conservative government. He literally used the phrase national conservatism. Um, and we talked about what that looks like there. And it talks about fundamentally kind of rejecting the lie of values, neutral, liberal neutrality. That is fundamentally what Prime Minister Orban is about. He says over and over again in our meeting how the state does not exist to purely be neutral between compelling matters of cultural inheritance and civilizational sanity. So, you know, to take one obvious example there, um, you know, gender ideology, the transgender, even homosexuality is just completely kept out of K through 12 schools. They are not going to be neutral and say, like, teachers can do what they want. 
So they're putting their thumb on this scale, I think, in a way that kind of national conservatives and kind of our friends at the post-liberal order substack ought to be quite proud of. Um, but I'll kind of get off my soapbox. I was quite happy with what I saw there. Um, it, it kind of affirmed a lot of what I had heard from Rod Dreher and her other friends. But um, just want to emphasize that the media narrative about Hungary, I think, um, is, is quite literally insane. Um, and I would definitely encourage those who are able to make the trek over there to see it for themselves. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Hungary. I want to go over there when I get a chance. Um, I think we, uh, one, one point is that, you know, basically the left has tried to make it so that any criticism of George Soros is anti-Semitic. Like that's, that's the entire meme. And that's why apparently, you know, so clearly Soros and Orban don't like each other very much. Soros wants to see Orban out of power, but Orban wanting Soros' influence in Hungary diminished is, is anti-Semitic. No, that's not true. We just, you know, I don't like the fact that George Soros has funded a bunch of unbelievably wacko progressive prosecutors in the United States to take over district attorney's offices and make our country less safe. That's not an objection to him rooted in his religion. It's an objection to his political activity. Um, and so I think, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. And it's also the, the sort of objection of anti-Semitism. It ends up just being a weapon, right? Like the way that the left uses it, they're not even remotely concerned about the welfare of Jews as a general matter. Like uh, there's a reason they're so hysterically in Israel and why they completely whitewash crime against Jews in, in American cities. Um, instead, it's like, this is just a weapon to tar their political opponents and make them, you know, beyond the pale. But it does, it's not going to work anymore, I don't think. You know, it, it, it's been an interesting, it's been interesting to watch conservatives look at, especially some sort of like national conservatives look at Hungary and, even just pick up, I think, some smaller things um, from what happens, like smaller things about culture. I mean, we've talked on the show before about like architecture um, and family policy, and there are things that you can do without, you know, taking over the entire federal government and expanding the bureaucracy, et cetera, et cetera, that would make this country a, a healthier um, and, and happier and better place. Um, and so I actually think that it's, it's worth studying a lot of that and saying, you know, as we reconfigure, just sort of like what we were talking about in the Russia segment, um, how are we serving our country? How are we putting our country first, our people first, um, and and not, you know, any of these special interests or corporate America, or uh, yeah, how are we putting corporations first? How are we putting Raytheon first? Um, but sort of bringing us back to, um, this is a huge country. It's, it's absolutely massive geographically, huge population, extremely extremely diverse population. I don't know if any society this big and this diverse has, has ever existed with this level um, of harmony, even though it doesn't feel like it's sometimes relative to, to other societies. It certainly is a, a remarkable achievement. Um, but then also saying, okay, but how do we actually have something cohesive? How can we have a cohesive national project? Um, I think there's, it's, it's heartening to see people trying to learn um, on that point. Yeah, I, I mean, I largely agree with that that take because I, I'm always skeptical of the sort of one-for-one one conflation, like they're doing it and it's working, so we should do it and it's working. And to Emily's point, like this is just a totally different kind of country, you know, and, and the founding was to explicitly reject that idea that, you know, we, we can take you know, the old world and make it work in the new, but there are obviously things that, that, you know, you can learn from, from policies abroad. And I think in this case, as Emily points out, the Hungarian, the Hungarian experience experiment in many ways is this idea of, of a paradigm toward policy in which the nation is 
paramount, right? When that you're thinking about what is best for the country, our people, our society. And we don't often think that way anymore in our policymaking. We think very short term, we think very sort of one-off, um, sort of crisis to crisis. Um, and that that sort of long-term thinking is missing from how we do a lot of things. And I think we could benefit you know, a lot from, from, from adopting, at least you know, to try and view our proposals through a paradigm, uh, like what Hungary has. If you wanna build a long-term sustainable society, you have to actually start thinking about your policymaking through that lens. Yeah, I mean, the general paradigm is 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 one of national and cultural inheritance, and, and and frankly, just to use kind of a somewhat overwrought term in our current discourse, but it is in the teaser of this very podcast, um, ultimately for the common good itself. Okay, I mean, that's really what they're concerned about is not kind of indulging various kind of idiosyncratic individual kind of uh, hot takes, but really just for the common good of the whole. Um, but let's transition over to final thoughts. Who wants to get us started? I can start. Um, I, I think that's a actually a good place to start final thoughts um, in, in that we and we, we do talk about this a lot, but I actually think it's the common thread through pretty much everything that we talked about this week um, in that Josh's point about Liz Cheney is an important one. She represents Wyoming. What is best for the people of Wyoming? What do the people of Wyoming want in a representative? Um, obviously, they elected her when she was, I would say, a very different politician uh, they probably could have predicted maybe if they if they could have possibly predicted how crazier how much crazier politics would get maybe they could have predicted that she wouldn't be super strong on those issues but I would say they elected her when she was a different politician um, so how do things uh, how, do, how does everything that the conservative movement and the Republican Party focuses on benefit the people, benefit the nation? Um, corporate America increasingly has literally no interest in how its activities benefit America. They are open about this. Companies like Nike are open about this. It is about what benefits their bottom line. And that doesn't matter if it helps China's national interest at the expense of the United States' national interest. Um, and, and so, you know, when we're talking of in these these Cold War terms about Ukraine and Russia, well, what is the American people's interest here? Explain that to us. Don't tell me we are all Ukraine because of some BS that does not apply in 2022. Tell me why the American people should care about it, and I will happily listen. Um, why it benefits them, um, not why they should care for, for some abstract reason, but why it actually benefits them, why it's good for the country. Um, and I think that uh, that's sort of abstract in and of itself, but it will help um, conservative politicians and even politicians. I mean, you see Tulsi Gabbard do this. Um, politi politicians in general immensely. And it's very telling that they haven't spoken in those terms for a long time. Yeah, I think yeah, that- Sorry, go ahead, uh, go ahead Rachel. My, like my, yeah, my final thought was gonna be to like return to my extreme normie takes on like Ukraine and Russia. But I think that that's kind of it. Cause I think I am, you know, I, I've not talked about a lot of Ukraine and Russia stuff cause I just don't feel as informed about it as I do about other topics. But I think that I am, the populace in that sense. Like no one has compelled, made a compelling argument to me about why, like I should, you know, in my small brain <laughs> devote even like my limited resources to caring about what's going on over there. And I think it, 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 that is something that needs explanation because again, you know, we've come up in this foreign policy universe, especially when it relates to Europe being like, oh, well, this is why NATO exists. Okay, well, if this is why NATO exists, then why are we the ones sort of throwing ourselves in front of everything? Where's NATO? You know, why does it matter or, that Germany doesn't care when they're a NATO partner, when, when, when all of Europe, you know, stands to be 
tangibly more harmed, I would argue, you know, by what's going on in, in Ukraine. And yet we are the ones that are sort of subjecting ourselves to sort of all the flagellation about it. Like someone, please, again, I am the normie here in this argument. Like someone, please tell me again, why when China exists, I should care about what is happening there. And I don't mean that in a callous way, right? Like obviously what's going on, you know, with the people of Ukraine and everything that could happen there is, is that's terrible, right? But but as a matter of, of national interest, someone should explain to me why our limited blood and treasure, our limited like, you know, bandwidth for all these issues should be directed toward Ukraine. I am the normie waiting for someone to rescue me from my normiehood. <laughs> right. Well, I, I don't think it exists. Like I, I thought about this tweet. Alyssa Farah tweeted this morning. She said, I speak a lot about the dangers of America's political divide. I usually use the example that I don't think Americans could currently come together around a common cause like we did in World War II. The Ukraine-Russia situation may sadly stress test that theory. I, I want to be like, you do recall that Japan and Germany declared war on the United States, right? Both of them. Japan invaded, Japan struck Pearl Harbor, destroyed, killed thousands of Americans and destroyed the primary naval base of the United States um, in the in the Pacific. And then Germany just followed up and just declared war on us and said, you know, OK, that's a little different, I think, than um, a, a border dispute in eastern Ukraine. That's just it's just substantially different. And it's like there's it's almost like there's a school of these weird kind of neoconservative foreign policy hacks who just assume the premise, right, or they assume the conclusion that Obviously, we have an enormous uh, foreign policy interest in what happens in the Donbass. It's like, no, I, I don't think that's obvious in the slightest. You need you need to explain it to us, and and they don't even bother. And it's, uh, I think that that's you know that's well, that would be my final. Yeah. Final by answer. the way, to that point, when when the State Department spokesman was pressed on this, right, when he actually was asked by an AP News reporter to explain, he basically just fell all over himself, not being able to. So, yeah. there's your answer in in, in part. Yeah, so I mean, just like two quick things. Um, uh, we've kind of mentioned these earlier, but I'm um, just going to emphasize here in closing thoughts, because we're all kind of talking about Russia, Ukraine, and obviously is kind of the story of the week of the month or whatever. Um, I, I, I said this earlier, but I, I really genuinely think that this is basically, it's very straightforward from my perspective. Again, inflation is at 40 years high. Democrats are going to get slaughtered this term. All the relevant polls are showing kind of that the Republicans might be poised to take kind of their biggest congressional majority since the Calvin Coolidge era in the 1920s here. Joe Biden is an old man, okay? He is in his late 70s. He came of political age during the Cold War. So when you need someone to pick on, who are you going to pick on other than the ex-KGB guy? You're going to pick on Vladimir Putin. I mean, if you want like a nice distraction, I really think it's it, it, it's that simple. I mean, I I... I I think there's possibly something out there that we don't know yet. It's possible that someone has something over his head. Um, I saw uh, it was either Lee Smith or Tony Bedron. I think it was Lee Smith had kind of an essay at Tablet Magazine a few weeks ago, basically speculating as this very exact point. Maybe we'll eventually see. But I, the final thing that I want to say before we wrap up the show is I think Rachel's professed quote unquote normie con take is, is actually exactly right in this in this particular situation, which is this is just obviously at the end of the day, a massive distraction from China. Okay, when I was over in Hungary, I, I gave a few interviews to kind of local Hungarian media and one of them kind of asked me from like an American perspective, what are your top foreign policy concerns? And I said, Okay, number one is China, number two is China, three, four and five are all China is China. Okay, that is the issue of our time. Um, we are not quite yet maybe in a new Cold War, but it's, an, it's entirely possible that we're heading there. That is the threat. That is the issue of our time from a geopolitical perspective. Now, I think some people from kind of an older generation kind of think about that and they say, oh, well, when we just kind of capitulate all around the world, we're just going to kind of embolden Xi Jinping. And to an extent, that's maybe true, but I would submit a, a, a countervailing thought as well. 
which is to the extent that we spread the global American empire in this late stage republic increasingly thinner and thinner all around the world with, pardon my language, but these half-assed troop commitments, okay? And we're basically not even enunciating what the clearly articulated national interest is in a given region. And there are troops there that they don't really even know what they're fighting for. We're probably not going to win. It's going to end in a, in a slightly slower, but nonetheless still humiliating failure. That, I think, more so than the former is what really kind of um, incentivizes Xi Jinping to kind of, you know, go ham basically in Taiwan and the South China Sea. But... Um, I will kind of get off my soapbox on that note. So um, on behalf of uh, Will, Emily, and Rachel, I'm Josh Hammer. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you at the next NatCon Squad.